basically all director does is tell people the moment before and why they're mad, right? And if you can get people to know where they just were and why they're mad in that scene, Bob's your uncle. You're pretty much in good shape. And five, four, three. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Arun Chaudhary. Oh, wait a minute. What the fuck am I doing? <laughs> Let me get the good stuff up. Oh, man. And, uh, and Mario, right. usually I do that. I, I do it. Too. I'll do it in German, and then I'll do the follow-ups in English because we actually do want to have, like, a, a good discussion. So that's how I did it last time. Yeah. You know, it's like. The topic sentence will be, and then, and then, then, and then I flip in. You don't have to worry about this, and of course, you will respond in kind. So here we go. And fumf, <laughs> Chatiri. <laughs> I'm just going to mix all the languages of Berlin together. Uh, two, one. Hallo, and welcome in Zurich Bem Committee program. Ich bin Ihr Gästberger, Arun Chaudhary, und das ist the News in Scheiße German. Wir werden über Die Nachrichten, die ist... How do I say that one? I'm going to try I'm gonna try this again. That seems like it was starting okay, though. Well, first of all, just remember, W is always the V sound, so Willkommen, not Willkommen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, they could make it the V, you know? It wouldn't, it wouldn't yeah. hurt anyone. That's a good start. And then Nachrichten. Or Nachrichten. 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 Na, yeah, Nachrichten. I can do all the things. I'm actually not deficient in the things. Uh, I'm just Let's deficient in the mental capacity. As my doctor says, perhaps we will just speak English because Americans are much too stupid to learn German. Okay. Here we go. And three, two, one. I don't know if that... Live from West Berlin, it's the committee program sponsored by Cadre Cigarettes, the national cigarette of Equatorial Fredonia, and starring Aran Chaudhary, Julia Doubleday, Flores Lovett, Fiam Mameli, Jevat Castrati, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. We begin the show with the committee orchestra featuring Mild Panning and their hit, It's a Six-Year Plan, because I'm saving one for you. Take it away! This is the Global News Rodeo with Aron Chowdhury and Forrest Levent. 
Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Aran Chaudhary, and this is your Global News Rodeo, a roundup of world events as curated by the show's own force. Levette, let's go. Item one. Foreshadowing flashback, Zelensky wins Ukrainian election. On this date three years ago, Zelensky won the Ukrainian presidential election in a landslide victory. Let's take a look back at that original election report by the BBC. Here we go. You ready? Uh, and I want to remind you something afterwards that I've reminded you before. But here we go. With nearly all the votes counted in the runoff, Zelensky has earned 73% of the vote, opposed to only 24% for incumbent Petro Poroshenko, the chocolate guy, as you'll recall. In an address to his supporters, Zelensky said, I will never let you down. Russian PM Dmitry Medvedev commented on the election win in a Facebook post, saying he expects Zelensky to represent familiar ideological formulas that won him the presidency, but also adding, at the same time, there is a chance to reprove relations with our country. Zelensky is a comedian who was trained as a lawyer. He is best known for a starring role in the TV series Servant of the People, where he played the Ukrainian president. Jonah Fisher of BBC News in Kiev says the joking must stop and the comedian must now use the month until the inauguration to drop the lighthearted social media posts and face the serious reality of a simmering war with Russian-backed rebels in the East. Uh, the thing that I did want to mention again was that Zelensky was someone who the U.S. was not very excited when he won. And of course, now you see a, you know, a huge gush of international support. However you feel about kind of how, how that has played out, it is definitely a reality and it's funny because he was not was not their guy and I think you see maybe echoes in some of these other uh, places where it's just not as clear cut as it used to be who is whose guy you know that's what living in a multipolar world looks like it is it is messier and it is a bit stranger Item two, do mad. French students unhappy with candidates. Socialist workers reporting that French university students have assembled en masse to protest the upcoming presidential election. The participants called the choice between neoliberal Macron and right-wing Le Pen, we call him a monarchist sometimes, uh, an electoral masquerade. One student was quoted saying the election puts an ultra-liberal and a fascist face-to-face. -face. They should not be treated the same, but they both present programs that oppress us, so we want to create a national movement of questioning. Following in the steps of university students, 15 gatherings of high school students protested with banners reading, Youth Say Fuck the National Front, the party of Marine Le Pen. But they also had signs that read, Blood on His Hands, in reference to Emmanuel Macron and his perceived uh, racist and sexist policies. Uh, as we heard from Pauline on the show just a bit back, there are these legislative elections that come on the heels of the presidential election. This is a, a, a thing that France does, in which usually just sort of ratifies what has happened. But that is maybe uh, someplace where we can look for tea leaves as to what the French left might try to consolidate around and whether that is starting to work, because we've just seen kind of a lot of disheartening um, momentum for the French left as a unified force. Item three, new men in Yemen, presidential council assumes power. Al Jazeera is reporting members of the newly formed presidential council have been sworn in in Yemen. The ceremony was conducted in front of the Yemeni parliament in the port city of Aden last week. The head of the council, Rashad al-Alimi, said economic stability and eliminating human suffering were at the top of the council's priorities. Yemen analyst Adam Barron said of the transition, the return to ground is a key step. That being said, the key priorities moving forward will ultimately be to improve service provision and to work on improve the tentative progress towards stabilization.
Other council members assured that they would remain in Yemen after the former president, Hadi, and government officials had resided in Saudi, Saudi hotels during the war. Hadi has now ceded his powers to the council, who will now attempt to address the debilitating seven-year conflict in the country. You know, I don't know enough to say if this feels like good, real progress towards just ending the, the humanitarian catas- catastrophe that that is in Yemen, and I, I hope so. And we should actually have our Yemen folks back on to talk about what's going on there very specifically because it's easy for us all to say, oh, we talk about Ukraine and we don't talk about places like Yemen, but then we still don't talk about places like Yemen. So let's talk about places like Yemen. Item four, prevailing plight of populists, Slovenian election could oust PM. And this is a good one for two reasons. One, uh, you really see Forrest leaning into the liberation, which is something that I like. And number two, you see me here uh, actually at a basement in Ljubljana, where we are working in the Slovenian election for opposition folks who we hope will have a good result. But let's talk about what Forrest wants to talk about. Euronews is reporting on the upcoming parliamentary elections in Slovenia. The country will head to the polls on Sunday. That will decide who will be the next prime minister. The two candidates are incumbent Janis Janša, who represents the conservative Slovenian Democratic Party, and Robert Golub, who represents the freedom movement formerly known as the Green Actions Party. Janša is a far-right populist who has come under fire for trying to suppress independent media and weaken the rule of law. You know this playbook. In the latest opinion polls, the two candidates and their parties we're showing only a 1% per, uh, percentage point difference. According to Europe Elect's national poll average, the Freedom Movement Party was only polling at 1% in January, but has since skyrocketed to 24.6% this month. Golub, a businessman and former energy minister, will look to oust Yansha on Sunday and has said he wants to tackle the systemic demolition of the independent state systems. Um For those of you watching on Monday, maybe I will splice in a thing really quick where I say... They won. They lost. Um, Because we should know. But for the rest of you watching this on time, uh, coming in right now. We're going to find out right now. We're going to find out right now. Now, Smart Club. Hi, welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Arun Chaudhary, and we have a very special edition of Smart Club because we have a hometown hero, someone from Jalan, which, as you know, the show's editor, Javad Kastrati, is from, and that is Nisa Sharifi. Hello, and thanks for coming on the show. Hi, and thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Where Where are you right now, actually? Right now, I'm in Stockholm. I'm visiting my mom, who is in Kosovo. Oh, okay. But I'm spending time with my brother, who's alone in Stockholm. <laughs> because there is a wide diaspora, and this may be something that we touch upon in a, in a lot of yes. different ways, of course. So we have a really cool, interesting topic today, which is we're going to talk about segregation, which is something that you're working on academically uh, in a very smart way, but which we Americans think of as a feature of our slave and post-slave society, which of course is something that's still very much being grappled with, and it's an internal tool of organization in that way. Um, I know you want to talk about it more in the Western Balkan and specifically Kosovo context, in which, uh, I mean, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but I think you would say it is, a, it is a, an active tool of colonialism. Can you just take a step back? People are familiar with Kosovo. 
Uh, we've done several uh, uh, um, segments on the show about different aspects of it, but not in this context. Can you step it back and talk about what the status of the Kosovo region was when it was in Yugoslavia uh, and how this changed? And if you can give us a general idea of the Western Balkans when it comes to sort of ethnic patchworks and how this works, I think this would be good background for us. So without me yapping anymore, Nisa, welcome. So... Um, unlike many of my peers, I actually like to start uh, the history of Kosovo a lot earlier than the socialist Yugoslavia because I think sort of trying to divide the history of Kosovo from the context of like the 19th century and the context of nationalism, but also the context of Western imperial princes cutting places up like pies is slightly incorrect because Kosovo actually falls within this context. So. First there was, I mean not first, but at one point there was the Ottoman Empire over the Balkans for a very long time. And then the Ottoman Empire became what was known as the sick man of Europe, because it was dying, mm. <laughs> especially in Europe. So at that time you had the emergence of a nationalist, national identity and sort of national sentiment all over the Balkans, which was actually in part backed by the West, fed by the West in order to fight the Ottomans. But the Albanians, we then found ourselves in a very interesting position because um, there came a point where with this sort of national sentiment rising, we wanted to create a country for the Albanians, which would comprise of the lands where Albanians were a majority. Now that didn't sit well, I guess, or fell onto deaf, deaf ears when it came to the European princes and as a result, Kosovo and several other parts that were inhabited by Albanians in what we wanted to have as this larger sort of Albania was split from what is today known as Albania. And actually Albanians, only about 35 or 40 percent of Albanians ended up in a national Albanian country. The rest of us ended up in other countries that were in no way actually Albanian with Kosovo ending up namely under Serbia. And that's sort of where our, um, I guess, journey battling colonialism begins. Because the idea of colonizing Kosovo became, uh, in a way, sort of the central part of Serbian national identity. And we see this like really blow up in the 90s, especially in the 90s wars. And this idea of Kosovo being the heart of Serbia starts b being built. Now, the thing is, Kosovo was demographically predominantly Albanian. So, as such, um, there were several different policies to change this demography, demography through colonization. They started very early on with, uh, with several documents, including one that was written by an ex-minister of, of an ex-king and uh, ones written by ministers in like, the, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, but also within the, the Socialist Federation of Yugoslavia. Uh, there were settler colonialists moved in, and there was this thing called the agrarian reform, which was supposed to, you know, reform the agrarian part of Kosovo, but actually a very big underlying factor in it was to settle Serbs in Kosovo in order to change the demography. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout, so the Balkan wars that were happening when the Ottoman Empire was uh, falling apart, and basically all other wars, the Albanians, especially the ones that found themselves outside modern-day Albania, uh, were subject to a lot of massacres, a lot of oppression, a lot of discrimination, and slowly we see uh, this, I this idea of, of the we see the racialization of Albanians start to happen. So, in a way, they start splitting the idea of Albanians in Albania and Albanians in Kosovo, which actually leads to an entire derogatory term being formed for the Albanians of Kosovo, which is even today in news. And um, 
So there is this constant project to try to colonize Kosovo. Now, under the socialist, uh, Repub the socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, Kosovo was not a republic. I mean, it was supposed to be a, a union of South Slavs, and I guess our main differentiating factor is the fact that we're not at all Slavic, not in language, not in culture, not in history, and for the most part, not in religion. We also do not define ourselves through religion, like a lot of our Slavic neighbors do. So um, we were completely the outlier, but we were autochthonous and in our own lands. And now there were a set of protests. So Kosovo has a history of, of resisting through protests and manifestations and claiming its rights through these protests and manifestations, which for the most part, if not for all of them, began as peaceful movements demanding rights. A lot of times this was met with a lot of repression, but at one point Tito, the the dictator, sort of charismatic leader for a lot of people at the time, perhaps not for the Albanians, uh, there we go with the cup, <laughs> um, decided that perhaps it would be best to grant Kosovo its autonomy and give it sort of this, this a degree of political independence within Yugoslavia uh, in 1974. Okay, so the mid-70s, yeah. got it. So this was a uh... This took a little while to this was that, you know, this actually took quite a long time before it was tried out as an autonomous thing. And did other regions with people resentful of this in different parts of Yugoslavia? Why does Kosovo get this treatment? We would like a little bit of extra autonomy as um, well. The thing is, uh, Vojvodina, which is this part of uh, Serbia that was populated also in part by non-Serbs, also got autonomy at the time and had the same status as Kosovo. But it's also like, I think it's important to highlight that this sort of granting of autonomy comes in Kosovo after a period of extreme repression at the hands of who was called Rankovic, which was uh, at one point the head of the police and secret services of the Serbian brand, basically of Serbia in ex-Yugoslavia, and whose mission quite a bit was to oppress Albanians and send a lot of them to jail. So by the time Kosovo got autonomy, there were already these... Um, tensions that had begun with Kosovo's colonization, so even before the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And in 74, when we got autonomy, most other republics, I think, were quite fine, and I guess it made a lot of sense to them, but perhaps it was not <laughs> extremely well-liked in Serbia within this context of the, the general goal of colonizing Kosovo. Can I ask you just on the more human level what things looked like, right? I've spent a lot of time uh, in Kosovo, but it's hard for me to imagine before um, what you call the racialization of Albanians. So before, there, before this happened, if I was in the center of Pristina or Mitrovica or any sort of large uh, Kosovar city, what would that be like? Would that would would before the racialization, people have sort of not even known who each other is, or vaguely known based on last name and language. Uh, I would love just to know, like you know, or is it and does it become more overtly colonial, like Algeria, where it's like French people live in the downtown and and the natives live outside. Like, what does it look like in terms of geographic segregation, and what does it look like in terms of schooling? If you could hit both those for us, I think it would, analogs we can understand. Actually, I think these two are some of the main lenses to look at the issue, and in order to understand it holistically. So, I... I don't think I know enough about the Ottoman period to be able to tell exactly how life was, but um, basically the Ottomans had different forms of classifying the populations that lived in the empire in different periods. At one point this was based on religion in the very beginning, 
And then eventually, the Ottomans also, I guess, had names for the different ethnic groups in the Balkans. But since the entire thing was under the Ottoman Empire, Kosovo had this thing called the Vilayet, which was like an administrative center. Um, there was some mixity in the cities, especially in cities that were uh, cities of trade or main points, like in Prizren. Um, but predominantly Kosovo was Albanian, even at that point, under the Ottomans. Now, when, when the agrarian reform began, you see the move of thousands of Serbs who are settlers. And actually, in the beginning, it's in the villages, because Kosovo at this point is so rural that um, you cannot think of taking Kosovo from a colonial project with ignoring the rural areas, with ignoring the villages. However, actually, even the kingdom of Serbia, under like the kingdom of Yugoslavia, they struggled to actually keep people in these villages, and a lot of them wouldn't stay, which is also something that I have confirmed with my grandfather, who actually remembers parts of it and has heard from his parents. Even though they were given, oftentimes they were given land for free, they were given houses, all of these were confiscated or nationalized from the Albanians before. But what you see in the cities is that you have a move of a lot of Serbs in the cities, especially cities that are big and there is industrial activity in. So this was a shock even for me, that I found out recently that the experiences of a lot of my family under the socialist Yugoslavia were actually largely different from the experiences of a lot of my Albanian peers who didn't happen to live in one of these cities that were industrialized. Eventually, after looking at maps and different data, I found that the places in Kosovo that were being developed were the places where there were a lot of Serbs. So the places that were considered centers, even though we were in the periphery, these places were sort of mini-centers for the Serbian population, which Jidan, the city me and Jack are from, happened to be one of. And so we had factories, we had women working in factories, which is seen as this like big Yugoslav move and whatnot. But all of this was still in the context of underlying repression and especially of underlying censorship of one's Albanian identity. So the second you were quite openly Albanian, or you aspire to anything openly Albanian. That became quite dangerous for you, even within the cities. In the areas that were predominantly Albanian and rural, the degree of lack of development, it, to me, was extremely shocking. As somebody coming from Jidan and having heard like a completely different history of Yugoslavia in Jidan, even with the underlying discrimination, just the degree of material development was absolutely mm -hmm. at a horrendous state in a lot of these rural places if they were populated by majority Albanians. Because uh, Serbia didn't really see a need to invest in any of it, at the time at least. Uh, and so in the city center, of course, you have like a relatively high concentration of Serbs because a lot of them hold relatively good positions in these cities. So in Jilan, in Pristina, Prizren, and many other cities, you will find that there were uh, neighborhoods that were full of Serbs, neighborhoods mixed between Serbs and Albanians, all of them which, for the most part, were part of the party. And... Especially after 74, we have like, I guess, a six to seven year period. So while the golden era for most other Slavs under ex-Yugoslavia lasted like 10 to 20 years, for us it was six to seven until the death of Tito. And then after the death of Tito, it became quickly clear again, the anxieties that resurfaced for everybody about what was going to happen resurfaced for us in a way double, because now we were like, oh no. Now it's going to depend a lot also on who comes next, because we had had this history of repression, and we knew that, in a way, they, it, they were out there to get us in the sense that our identity wasn't allowed to exist and flourish in its whole, and our right to self-determination was completely ignored or undermined. Now, this became particularly worse once Milosevic came to sort of climbed up to power in 1986. By 1989, he consolidated a lot of his power, and that's where he abolished Kosovo's autonomy, 
And in addition to that, Albanians, that's when the segregation started being very clear. That's when the segregation started happening, in fact, like properly on a policy level, in uh, the socialist Yugoslavia at least. Because the Albanians, many of them, if actually most of the Albanians that were civil servants, either lost their jobs or were forced out. So either they lost their jobs or were completely just fired, or they were told to work in conditions in which they basically had to quit. Um, all of the highest positions will, were refilled with Serbs, including in hospitals, schools, and everywhere else. And um, there was a new curriculum that was supposed to be taught over the Albanian students. So Albanian uh, secondary education in universities was shut which the Albanians had only gotten in 1970, which was a huge, huge blow. And finally, there was a case of mass poisoning in schools, which really showed the Albanians that, in fact, these public, uh, public places were no longer safe, that it's not only that now we didn't belong as much as everybody else, but now we were in actual proper threat, even in cities, even these public places, which parts of the population, like some of my family, had been shielded previously because of their social status. However, the ethnic sort of the racial component came back in the 90s very strong, and now we completely pulled out of, of public spaces, especially schools. So, so how did schools become a place, you know, a, 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 a actual battleground? Uh, like, was it a slow deterioration that's happening even before Milosevic, what you're talking about in terms of primary schools and language? And like, at what point is does the is there a mix of languages? At what point is Albanian dropped in this journey you're describing? And so now, where we are at in like 1989, what would someone not forget university? What would someone going into high school or even elementary school like? What would the language on the blackboard be? So um, the the history of of schooling in Albania and Kosovo has sort of like an up and down curve at times. Serbian was always a second language. Serbo-Croatian at the time was a mandatory second language. Um, but higher school education, university education wasn't available to the Albanians in Albanian, even though there was a university in Pristina. It just wouldn't teach in Albanian, for which there was a series of student protests until that was finally opened in 1970. Now, the new curriculum that was proposed um, actually was a very a, a curriculum that, that, that had a centrality in Serbianization. And after the poisoning of, of several of several thousands of primary and secondary school students, parents no longer felt safe sending their students to these sort of classrooms, which were in many ways potentially sort of death rooms for their children, or rooms where they would be actually physically hurt. But on top, there was also this curriculum which was there to oppress us on a on a narrative, discourse, and intellectual level. So then people uh, boycotted. Uh, Serbian structures, starting with the schools, and set up an entire um, entire parallel education system so that not only the Albanian uh, language could be kept in universities, but also that the Albanian curriculum could be taught to students earlier than universities. How this looked in, in actual practical terms is that now, instead of the school, which was a public institution, you actually had to go and take take classes in people's houses. The entire thing was completely set up on, on this um, unshakable solidarity that formed between the Albanians in the 90s. And it, it depended on people opening up their homes and actually teaching students within these homes. Recently, I had a discussion with a feminist from Kosovo who actually 
reminded me in many ways that women carried this school project because women in many ways ran the home, which they still do today in most parts of the world. But in addition, they were overrepresented in primary and secondary education, and now they were taking the whole thing at home. And how it worked is that one person would um, decide that, you know, X class or X lecture was going to be held in their house. And by word of mouth, the students would, would learn about it. Because if you left too many traces and it somehow fell into the hands of uh, the Serbian police or the secret services or anybody, they would bust the entire operation, um, jail and beat the people involved, and just, in general, completely destroy the whole thing that was happening. My mom, who was in university at the time, and my aunt, who did high school and university at the time, actually talk about the fact that they don't even properly know how the inside of these of the public buildings where they were supposed to receive their education look like because they have no access to them, because all of it went through but sort of the private. So in a way, when it comes to segregation, it's very interesting to see that the Albanians never had quite complete access to their own public sort of spaces to their own cities, but in the 90s, these public spaces are actually completely taken from them. And taken from them physically, through policy, but also very symbolically, through sort of the, the, um, the installation of different Serbian symbols in different parts of the city, and in Gigan, that uh, culminates with the installation of a statue, or I think maybe it was sort of a tiny water fountain of Tsar Lazar, of the Serbian king, and according to a lot of the Albanians from Jidan that I've spoken to, for them, that was the moment, the sort of clear cut, the shift in paradigm when they realized that while they had been progressively losing their city until that point, especially after the, after, uh, the 80s, especially in the 80s, when that was installed, it was a clear message, a clear symbolic message that their public spaces no longer belonged to them, that there, were to, that there was to be a segregation in these spaces, and most city centers stopped being frequented by Albanians, schools were no longer frequented by Albanians, and there was a lot of fear in hospitals of sterilization and of different unethical and oppressive and discriminatory medical procedures that also pushed the Albanians away from hospitals. So how you see it in practical terms is that while Albanian was on the blackboard in primary and secondary education for many years, while you were able to write in Albanian in many times, you weren't able to write about being Albanian or about your actual history as an Albanian. And in the 90s, that became completely impossible. And in universities, you could no longer even write in Albanian on the blackboard. So instead, we... Um, so the, the I guess the move was to actually push us away from our... Um, public spaces and away from generally our spaces, and in addition we self-segregated out of fear for safety, out of just our fear for our well-being. At least that's um, a part of it is explained by that, through uh, by the people I've spoken to. A, a lot of the story that we especially know, um, you know, is uh, then the, you know, direct anti-colonial struggle culminating, you know, an alliance with NATO and, and the bombing, etc. But like, we don't talk about it in terms of what you're talking about. So, like, at what stage in the actual conflict do the cities demographically start to self-select shift? You know, uh, are are actually more Serbians being told to get in there for some reason? You know, like, hey, we, or is it like people are like, hey, we need to move because there's, you know, uh, and and how does that draw a line to the current demographic map? of Kosovo, which is not simple, right? Which does have uh, features that continue to sort of bedevil the constitutional uh, makeup of the country. So um, a lot of people never actually moved away from their cities and the, from their uh, houses and apartments inside the cities. The segregation happened in public spaces. 
So people would stay in their cities throughout the 90s. They would stay in their houses, but they would not frequent uh, public spaces. So how the segregation actually happened is that um, the public spaces were safe and accept accepting for the Serbs in the city, um, but these public spaces were no longer safe or accepting for the Albanians in the city. So then Albanians started sort of uh, frequenting almost purely private spaces. So other people's houses, even cafes were actually done a lot of times in different houses. The windows were taped up with newspapers so nobody would see it. And this happened in the 90s. So after 89 and the abolishment of Kosovo's autonomy, there are a set of policies put in place that bring us to this point. The poisoning of the students, which was, by the way, dismissed as mass hysteria, despite the protest of several doctors who were even sent by Yugoslavia itself, um, it is one of the culminating factors. The firing of civil servants from public positions is another one of the culminating factors. And the switching of all key positions in said public institutions with Serbs is another key feature. This happened in like a very short period from 89. And by 92 or 93, we had this full-blown, what we call the parallel structure, parallel institution system in Kosovo, which, by the way, was completely based on nonviolent resistance. Now, depending on which camp, people will argue that the nonviolence was either a strategic plan because we knew sort of our size and, I guess, military, in that case, lack of capabilities in Sirsa 91-92, and for other people it's genuinely because they believe this was one of the proper ways to resist within the context of sort of the, the peaceful uprisings uh, after the fall of, of the wall. And... Um, so this, as you said, culminated eventually with an actual full-blown invasion by Serbia in 99, which, in my personal opinion, didn't happen earlier because they were a little bit too busy being in other countries and having wars there. And 98-99 is when the tanks and everybody else is completely present in the territory of Kosovo. Eventually, um, there are the NATO bombings which liberate Kosovo and save Kosovo. After, by the way, I must point out, because a lot of people seem to be unaware, a series of negotiations where the Kosovo party made incredible, in my opinion, absolutely insane concessions, including concessions to our own independence, which the Serbian party pulled out of. The NATO bombings didn't come out of the blue, is my main point in this part of the explanation. Just... Side note, um, because it's a leftist show, and I know that there are a lot of very weird positions on this. So basically, no, it's interesting to know that there was a federal solution on the table. I think people don't. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, it's a solution that, to a lot of Albanians, felt extremely unfair, and and for good reason. And yet, I think it would have been to quite an extent accepted. But it was, my point is it wasn't the Kosovo party that boycotted it. It was Milosevic and his party that boycotted it. And that eventually, then after another bunch of massacres, led to the bombings. Perhaps the absolute failure of the international community to do anything about Rwanda and Bosnia <laughs> helped convince them a little bit to save us. But um, after that, we have the UN mission in Kosovo, which in Kosovo is commonly known as UNMIC. So in UNMIC... Um, in UNMIC, you have sort of the demography of Kosovo is unclear because after the bombings, um, you have about a million Albanians, more than a million Albanians, coming back to their homes. A lot of them were in internally displaced. A very extremely large number of them were displaced outside Kosovo's borders, I think with about 250 to 500,000 of them being in Albania, and then people came back. Obviously, after the war, um, there were cases where Serbs felt scared 
or unwelcome and they left. I'm sure there were cases where some Serbs legitimately were threatened and left. But the point is, there started to be a demographic shift in Kosovo. Um, a lot of the autochthonous Serbs stayed. So Serbs that had been in Kosovo since for hundreds of years stayed, but a lot of the Serbs that had come later left, and this is already after the bombings. Then, um, after a series of riots in 2004, you have a, another number of, of Serbs and Roma people move away from Kosovo, a lot of them, um, again, from feeling threatened because the riots did have a, a certain sort of ethnic element to them. But that's when the international community came up with this idea that, I don't know, I guess at the time felt great for them, called decentralization, whereby they moved a lot of the Serbs into villages around the cities. And now we're having to deal with the problem that um, these villages have, these villages are now segregated. They are not part of what's, what I guess we would call normal Kosovo life, and they're predominantly populated by Serbs. We do not have this issue with the rest of the communities in Kosovo. The Turkish community is still in the cities, still in the houses where they lived for hundreds of years. Very, I mean, I can't even say integrated because these are autochthonous sort of communities of Kosovo. They don't need to be integrated. They are part of Kosovo. But there is virtually no real contact with the Serbian villages. And now we're having to deal with the problem of So you're saying, you know, in a, in a place like Kosovo, there are, of course, natural enclaves, but that the Serbian ones are somehow construct like are artificial constructs. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, I am not even very sure that there were natural enclaves before as such. I think in a lot of cases, a lot of villages, a lot of Kosovo is ethnically homogenous in terms of being Albanian. But now there were many parts that included very many other communities that are entire parts that are ethnically homogenous but not Albanian. For instance, like uh, a lot of the villages in the mountains around Prizren, populated by the Gorani, or at least that were populated by the Gorani. But yeah, the Serbian enclaves are a completely, in my opinion, fully artificial <laughs> setup that were an, a direct result and a wanted result of the decentralization policy. Now, the unwanted result of the decentralization policy was this de facto segregation that is happening, and a de facto segregation that is extremely difficult to bridge because in Kosovo, it is not required for the uh, non-majority communities to learn Albanian as a second language in school. Now, most of the non-majority communities that aren't Serbs actually do take it as a optional second uh, language class. For instance, in my school there, my cousins went to Turkish uh, schooling because they are ethnically Turkish, and they all took Albanian since I think grade one or two up until they finished their primary and, second, like, primary and high school education. But in the Serbian enclaves, so for instance in the villages next to Kosovo, there is no such thing. There is no Albanian language learning. And although we have quotas on the government level and Serbian is a official language of Kosovo, not everything goes through a f through state quotas and through state institutions. I mean, there is an entire part of life that isn't actually state institutions, and it's difficult enough to find a job in a country with uh, with which has which is rebuilding its economy after such a difficult context. It's, I think, probably impossible to find a job if you also do not speak the actual language spoken by most people. Which is why the which is why we see that there is virtually no segregation of the Turks of Kosovo in Kosovo, even in villages where they're majority, for instance in Mamusha or in a village next to Jinan, which is Dobrchan, there is complete sort of harmony and, and just a, a rather, I guess I, I would say normal way of things functioning, a, a complete sort of um, engagement between the different communities, but we do not see this with the Serbian villages who are now them living in parallel institutions. A lot of times actually even using um, 
even using um, the Serbian dinar to pay in their shops in Kosovo. So virtually, really, like a complete uh, segregation in the sense that the two communities are out of touch with each other's realities. We know very little about them, and I think they know very little about us. And this was a direct, direct fruit of the policy of decentralization. Because when you decentralize a community so small, especially with a history like this, it's, it's unlikely that e if they have no common language to speak, it, like some sort of reconciliation is going to happen after. I mean, it's, it's the perfect sort of context for it not to happen, in my personal humble opinion. But I, I think what, what, that makes a lot of sense. What, I, I mean, and I think people will understand the intractability of that. And you don't have to solve all of the problems right here with us, you know. But the last thing I do really want to ask you, though, is, like, does there need to be a major constitutional reform uh, to make this happen? Is it, it, I mean, like, to, to the decentralization process is sort of celebrated in one of these I call cut-and-paste constitutions where it's like people in Brussels are like, oh, here's some of this constitution, and we put it with that, and the Brussels model, and you, you throw it all together. Um is is the does there need to be some sort of like huge reform about that or is this what will make this less intractable obviously we don't want to wholesale you know move people around forcibly etc yeah i mean we we can't luckily <laughs> um but there there has to be a, a Rather than just a reform, I think there has to be a complete paradigm shift when it comes to this. I mean, for one, I think it's impossible to envisage that there is going to be some sort of more interaction if there is, again, no shared language between the two communities. Now, there are several projects to like make us meet or whatever, but yeah, I do think it has to be on an institutional level, may maybe even on a constitutional level, and I do think the problem has to be tackled on all levels, but I do think language is a pretty central part to it. Schooling is a pretty central part to it. So I think even if we do have some sort of constitutional reform, for as long as we have syllabuses that are actually opposing each other's histories between our schools, that are the Albanian schools and the Serbian schools in Kosovo, there cannot be any sort of interaction, and I think the segregation will keep happening. But the segregation in this case is, I think there is a lot of also self-segregation uh, of these sort of enclaves, and I, lot of, I think a lot of this self-segregation is because, again, of this history of colonization and everything, I think actually, finally, um, losing the, the privileged position of power, losing that, that position of being the status quo, was a, a pretty strong blow, I think, for a lot of the Serbian community in Kosovo. And also, without that having, uh, having been dealt with, I don't see how the segregation would be fixed. But I guess my last point about this would be, even if Kosovo, in my truest opinion, even if Kosovo makes its most honest, good faith effort, constitutional reform, whatever else, to solve this issue, without Serbia actually owning up to its history, I think it is difficult for it to happen because a lot of the political structures of the Kosovo Serbs, including the party that represents them in parliament, are, have ties and in many ways are completely run by Serbia and they control much of the school curriculum and syllabus and so unless Serbia is willing to accept that there was a history of colonization that what happens to what happened to the Albanians is the experiences that the Albanians are sort of describing I think there will be always this animosity and this complete lack of understanding on both sides because we know what we've been through but I think a lot of Serbs are either unaware of our actual experiences or unwilling to see those experiences for what they were because 
to some point they actually agreed with, with what was being done to us. I would like actually to precise something that Zizek always brings up when it comes to this, is that a lot of people in Serbia proper thought Milosevic was being too soft on the Albanians in the 90s including during the war. And I think a lot of the sentiment was actually shared by many Kosovo Serbs. And so I think, yes, there has to definitely be some sort of massive institutional paradigm shift. There has to be a more natural, for the lack of a better word, Kosovo. So Kosovo, which is not this like nice little sort of project that we do for a PowerPoint presentation in university full of our beautiful ideas and idealism. Kosovo has to be for Kosovo. There was a reason Kosovo was oppressed and colonized, and that wasn't because it was a multi-ethnic cosmopolitan dream. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the colonization project didn't target literally everybody and was like, we're going to colonize everybody regardless. Colonization needs an other it needs somebody to colonize. And that by no means was a pluralistic thing in Kosovo. The, the colonized target, the colonization target, were the Albanians. The, the war happened because of the Albanian history and character of Kosovo and because, in my opinion, of Kosovo's right to self-determination. But now, what we ended up with in the modern republic, while we're learning to love our state symbols, and a lot of us do love them by now completely. I was only 10 when the independence happened, so I love the state symbols by now completely. I understand that to a lot of older people, these state symbols feel still artificial. We weren't allowed to have any eagles on the suggested flag. We weren't allowed to have anything red or black. So I think... With, by paradigm shift, I mean, I wish Kosovo would have the right to actually properly self-determine what it wants to do, but I don't think in any way that would hinder the, the rights and privileges of the non-majority communities in Kosovo. I mean, we're talking about autochthonous populations that have lived in these lands with no problems, especially, like, I'm trying to completely demolish this idea of, like, a region full of people with a bloodthirst who like to kill each other. Absolutely not the case for hundreds of years at times. And... Um, but I don't think it would necessarily be that much of a problem if the self-determination happened properly and if Serbia were to actually admit to its history, admit to its policies, and admit to its crimes. And finally, we would at least be on the same page about what happened. Without seeing the same reality, we cannot even agree or disagree on it. We're just arguing about two different realities. And even if one side decides to make all efforts to build a better reality, for as long as the other side is not willing to be part of it, because it doesn't recognize this as a reality that it should be part of, there will be no desegregation of Kosovo. And um, I also would like to like point out the proportion. When the segregation happened in the 90s, we're talking about most of the population being segregated from public spaces. What we're talking about now is enclaves of villages of a population which is less than 6% in the country which actually makes it in many ways much more difficult for us to solve it because they're very small in number. So, so it's actually, you have to have tailored things because it's small and not everywhere and it's in enclaves. But I do genuinely think while the segregation in the 90s was in Kosovo and even now there's some form of segregation in Kosovo because of the decentralization, it is not up to Kosovo alone to solve this issue. And in fact, it is largely up to Serbia owning up to its history, especially its history of previous segregation. Um, to solve it properly and like at at the root, that's it. Yeah, no, this is. I mean, look, thank you so much for walking this through us, and let let me say just to put a fine point on it, and maybe in a way that's like less comfortable sometimes for folks from Kosovo, but to really like point the blame a bit on the West and North America and places where we like, you know. We care for a couple of months and we send in experts to do their things. And, like, 
you know, it's not like what you're talking about is not part of the conversation that happens in Western Europe and in Absolutely. North America about recognition of Kosovo. Absolutely. Right? Re- like, rec- like, so, and, and it sort of also seems like it has to be tied up in this. And until that is thought about in a different way, other than just in the geostrategic kind of post Cold War, nobody knows what to do with the Western Balkans because they weren't in either camp and we still don't know what to do with them. Uh, you know, for God's sakes, don't let them in the EU. It, it is sort of, it, it, it will continue to be a problem. It will continue to be a borderland, right? Like Kosovo is, uh, your prime minister has described it many times, where as the only country in Europe doesn't border a country in Europe. You yeah. know, it's like, it, it's, it, it is on the periphery of something and yet is in the middle of something. And that's just going to be a tough spot. And actually, if, if I could make just two quick points regarding this. Uh, The first one, just to sort of clarify the degree to which many of these policies of UNMIC, of the international community, were ironic and, like, in my opinion, ridiculous, is uh, a central policy of the segregation during uh, the Milosevic 90s in Kosovo was the fact that Albanians could not buy land from Serbs. You could not write land sort of property under your name as an Albanian if you had purchased it from a Serb, because she did not want that to happen in any possible way. Now, after the war, UNMIC actually reinstates the same policy for many years. So at that point, I am wondering, if you have the same exact policy with one of the most racist, genocidal, colonial leaders of the 90s in the Balkans, are you really, have you thought it through, would be my main question. I found this out doing an internship on like property law in Kosovo, which is an insane mess, but it completely shook me. That's number one. Number two, I think um, we are actually the only country in Europe that doesn't border European country. I really love that expression. In addition, I think we're like a country in Europe, which is by no way, shape or form considered European, but by most other Europeans whatever Europe means, because of history, because of this idea of center and periphery. And we're also, because of our geographic location in Europe, very often completely ignored from the decolonial conversation. There are very, very few people who will include Kosovo in the decolonial conversation. And until Kosovo is seen for for what it is as a whole, so Kosovo with its decolonial history, not a civil issue that somehow escalated into a secession, yeah, I think it will absolutely not be saved, especially if, it, if it's looked at through this like geopolitical interest approach, and especially if the West still keeps feeling bad that they helped secession in one of their fellow like friendly countries. Because I know that a lot of European countries that have strong ties with Serbia to this day feel bad, uh, shout out to France, for um, having supported the bombings. And I, I think until the West in its said understand and resolves all of this, Yes, there will not, like, we will always have issues like this. And I guess my last point is to say that there are a few of us that are trying to work on building sort of this this colonial, um, not building a colonial narrative, but rather exposing Kosovo's colonial past in order for this to be understood properly and for us to be included in the conversations because we're definitely not included at the European Union level like everybody else. We are othered to this day. We're seen as a state which is like a state, but is it really? And at the same time, we often are completely excluded from like leftist spaces, decolonial spaces, because we are seen as, as an like, ultra-nationalist U.S.-created enclave
wave in the Balkans that ruined the beautiful project of this like incredible dreamland called Yugoslavia and our entire history of years and decades of resistance and years and decades of solidarity among our people who were being oppressed is completely ignored on both spaces. So I think to some extent, yes, they have to realize this. And in order for them to realize this, some of us are making our best efforts for them to be able to just read things about realizing this. Because sometimes I feel Kosovo was so subaltern that we didn't even manage to produce any knowledge pertaining to this. We were given just enough rights to shut up for many years and not bring this up enough. And then when it was taken from us, we didn't, and anything that was created on the way was oftentimes destroyed. You have a lot of books of Sabri Halimi, which were completely burned to crisp. Um, and so I think now we're finally doing this work um, of, of creating knowledge, exposing history, in order for us to be finally considered in many ways humans and on a geopolitical level a proper state in both the Western sphere, so, so this bigger who decides sphere, as well as in like decolonial academia and in the what people went through and their experiences matter sphere. Uh, look, this, thank you so much again for coming on. And uh, look, when we start the petition to get the flag uh, rethought re of, I hope you'll think of Javat and I because, you know, we love design and we love flags <laughs> and we love red. I We're good. We're on board. Too. Without meaning to uh, to provoke anybody who is very easily provoked, <coughs> Serbia, <coughs> um, I will reach out to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Committee, committato, committed, committato, rule, committee, we're young, way, submitting, we're committing. Guys, 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 here, that's all. Okay, we'll play something uh, softer. Like what? Like, like, like a ballad? Lullaby surf? Sleepy music? Jeez. Okay, just count it off. Just count it off. panning. Love to you both. Thank you for leading the committee orchestra as always. This is the news in shitty German. Hallo und willkommen Zurich BIM Committee Program. Ich bin Ihr Gastberger Aran Chadri und das ist the news in Scheiße German. 
I should say Scheiße Deutsch. Wir würden über die Nachrichten in der Sprache von Goethe und Schiller sprechen. Das ist die Wahrheit, ja. Was, was geht ab, Mario? Uh, in Germany or in general in the world? Well, you know, just tell us how you are first and how things are in Hanover, and then I want to ask you about Germany, and we'll relate it to the world. Well, for me, for me it's okay right now, um, but I live in a more peaceful uh, part of the world, and also in one of the more prosperous parts of Germany, so we don't have the same problems as other people right now. And uh, when it comes to other people's problems, uh, Germany is not really always equipped to deal with those. We're not really even equipped to deal with our own. Uh, everybody, you know, of course, Mario Quade. He is someone who has helped moderate our show, helps moderate Namiki Kant's show, and also is a student of history and an active YouTuber. And we're going to get to the bottom of some things, even as Forrest tutors me in German in this segment. So, you ready? You up for this? Schultz hatte in der ersten Tagen Gelegenheit, aber auch Gelegenheit. 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 Okay. Schultz hatte in den ersten Tagen Gelegenheit, aber auch große, uh, groß Enttäuschung. Großes. Was kannst du uns sagen? Well, Schultz generally, yeah, has been a big disappointment because yeah, you know. uh, people had hoped that um, there would be a big policy change uh, after 16 years of Angela Merkel. Uh, we essentially elected Schultz because he has a similar personality to Merkel, but we also wanted a change in policies. Now, we didn't really get that, not necessarily because of the SPD or the Green Party in government, but because, um, well, the FDP is blocking nearly any kind of progress that could potentially be made. So you think that actually, like, the, co the coalition, it's not just a fragile coalition, different interests. It's that one of the parties is a sour partner. Like, there is actually sort of an enemy in the House. Yeah, and uh, the fact that Schultz is ideologically more aligned with parts of the FDP program, the neoliberal market extremism, than with uh, the program he ran on, which was more dictated by the social democratic base of the SPD. Uh, Scholz himself did rise to prominence in the party under Gerhard Schröder, who was essentially Germany's Bill Clinton or Tony Blair, who turned the SPD into a neoliberal party in the late 1990s. And well, because of this, it's uh, hard to say if it's just the FDP or if or it's also Olaf Scholz not willing to use his authority as the chancellor in the coalition to stop Christian Lindner and the other three um, FDP ministers, Lindner being the financial minister and leader of the FDP, uh, from pushing through their neoliberalism and hindering the other social democratic ministers and the green ministers from actually pursuing any kind of progressive policy changes. I mean, you spoke a little bit, and I certainly witnessed firsthand how even progressives in the SPD put a bit of their hopes and dreams on the kind of Rorschach test that was Schultz. Uh, 
Ist Scholz ein Mini-Biden? Kinder. But um, I actually would say Biden is better than Schultz when it comes to uh, selling himself in the public. Uh, Schultz doesn't really go out into the public eye. He holds back, kind of like Angela Merkel. Uh, she also, even though she was the chancellor for 16 years, always remained kind of an enigma. Uh, she barely gave interviews. Um, there were no big Uh, investigative pieces about her personal life. Um, it was always hard to grasp her own political ideology because it always seemed to change with the moment. And Schultz is kind of the same, but at the same time, when he goes out in public, unlike Merkel and unlike Biden, he comes across this kind of arrogant. He gave an interview a couple of weeks ago on the talk show Anne Will about Ukraine, and he came across as unlikable, as uh, demeaning. He considered we were prepared, even though everybody can see Germany was not actually prepared. We constantly hoped for the best, and not just since the, well, build-up of military presence at the Ukrainian border by Russia, but for years. Germany energy dependence on Russia started back in 1979 and became really bad in the late 90s under the Helmut Kohl administration, then increased even more under the Schröder administration, and then increased further despite all the things Putin did in the 16 years she was in office under Angela Merkel, and there was no plan whatsoever in the entire time what we would do if something happened that would put the political pressure on Germany to go off Russian gas and oil, and he is unable to admit this and becomes kind of petulant when pushed on it. And to be frank, Biden is sometimes the same, but in general he has more of the public image of Uncle Joe, of this... Um, affable, likable, working-class person, even though we all know that's not who he is. Schultz has this public persona of somebody who tries Confidence. to stand above things and is untouchable. Um, do you think, uh, in terms of, it is like, from, the, from my outside perspective, it seems like Schultz has sort of made some kind of bold promises, you know, that were even, you know, semi-shocking about what the military might do and energy things might do and then sort of has to walk them back like one would assume someone who g comes up in this parliamentary system would kind of have more of a grasp of what's possible and like what is going on with this kind of big talk and then walking it back is he hoping that people will sort of catch up with the rhetoric i mean is, is this a political problem or is this a policy problem um, I think it's, uh, when it comes to his bold uh, promises, I think he, again, tries to be Angela Merkel. He um, tries to be asymmetrical in his policy approach, and that is he, const he hopes that people don't actually catch on, that he contradicts himself, that his promises can't be fulfilled by reality, and uh, this also all leads back to uh, the coalition. Um, he has his own party and the Green Party that push for more uh, aggressive policies. Some I agree with, some I don't agree with. 
but they actually push for policy changes. And then he has some more conservative SPD ministers and the FDP that hold all of that back. So um, if it's a politics or policy um, issue, I think it's both. And I think his problem is that he tries um, to portray himself in public to not lose touch with the own SPD base uh, to as somebody who's more progressive and more pro-labor and more pro-the little guy than he actually is. Konstu Sagen VD Nachrichten Median Is that Dazu? Yep. Dazu. 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 Bedragen. Okay. Let me just say this again. Kannst du sagen, wie dich Nachrichten Medien dazu beitragen, dieses Narrative in Deutschland aufzubauen? Aufzubauen. Aufzubauen. Um, uh, the media is actually, um, how do I say this? It's contradictory. Um, there are obviously media outlets that kind of are on short side and try to excuse what he does, and then there are those that really attack him for not being able to um, do what he promised. But those are few and far between. It's more often than not that you get, especially from Germany's biggest publisher, the Axel Springer Verlag, uh, and its two main newspapers, Bild and Welt, attacks on how he isn't conservative enough, how he isn't not um, more neoliberal. And right now, most German media is especially gung-ho on pushing him and in general the government into just saying, we will deliver all weapons the Bundeswehr has to Ukraine, and if need be, we will also send soldiers in and escalate into World War Three. So there, the German media, sadly, even the um, public broadcasters are not that different from what you see from the pro-profit media in, for example, the United States. And what is it that sort of, is there something that is, we've talked about this a bit before, and I do actually want to get into it even deeper, uh, probably in later episodes, but like, what is it about the American and German media landscape versus other places, right? The UK has its own tabloid thing going on, but it's not the same when it comes to sort of surfacing conspiracies, when it comes to sort of the kind of joy of some of this. Like, wh what do you think it is that makes these such re rich environments for that kind of misinformation? Um, on one hand, um, uh, there are kind of two actually three things. Um, one is, as I said, the biggest uh, publisher in Germany is the Axel Springer Verlag, which uh, also, by the way, last year bought Politico in the United States, so they are also in yeah, the US market. Um, and um, they build their brand on being contrarian, especially with Bild. Welt always kind of served as the, okay, they're the serious journalists, and Bild is the agitator. By now, they're kind of the same. This started when the family Springer started to lose uh, influence on uh, the publisher. That's one thing. Biggest German publisher being very contrarian, actually also blackmailing um, smaller um, publishers into not actually going against them. There have been stories in the past of um, kiosk owners uh, 
not wanting to sell bill because of all the false information they push and because a lot of printing presses are owned by Springer and other newspapers also uh, print their um, printed outlet uh, there, they just decided we are not going to print anything, not going to deliver anything if you are not going to publish our best-selling um, uh, yeah, publication. And so there they have a big influence on German media and hence most of German media is not going to actually challenge Axel Springer. Then you have the fact, um, I think that is from a study from Swiss last year about German-speaking media, how most of German-speaking media really downsize their foreign policy um, or foreign offices and is now largely relying on uh, big news agencies. And these, at the same time, are largely influenced by publications from the U.S. State Department. Right. So um, German news is very much, especially when it comes to foreign policy, not so much domestic policy, dictated by whatever um, the U.S. State Department puts out. And they are overtly trusting of that, kind of like American media. So. There you get, um, again, another piece of the puzzle. And then this is now historical. Um, the CDU has always tried to shift uh, German media to the right. Back in the 1950s, uh, first Federal Chancellor Konrad Adenauer was very adamant about uh, the ARD, Germany's first public broadcaster, being too left-wing and too critical of the CDU. And he wanted to create a new public broadcaster that was more friendly to the CDU. That is why we have the ZDF. And then later, under Helmut Kohl, the CDU was also like, they are too critical of us. They are too left-wing. And then they opened up the floodgates for private television, private media. Also the 1960s, then the fence minister and founder of the CSU, uh, Franz Josef Strauss, actually, after a critical report on the Bundeswehr, had the police uh, search the offices of Der Spiegel. And so there's a long history, especially within the CDU, and especially the right wing of the CDU, trying to pressure the media into um, being more friendly towards them. And just the like the Republicans do in the United States, and the media responded it by being more neutral and being overtly critical of uh, other candidates and other parties, the German media is doing the same. We could witness that last year. When Armin Laschet had actual scandal after scandal during the uh, federal election, and the CDU was very mad at the media for not reporting as critically on Annalena Baerbock, who was leading at the polls at the time, and then they took, uh, especially, I remember uh, them being plenty critical and of made Annalena mountains Baerbock. out of that. Hmm? I remember them being plenty critical of Annalena Baerbock in the yeah, newspapers generally. Over stuff like, there was a couple that didn't weeks really matter you know, you and came in comparison bed. to Laschet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So um, what's interesting is, is what you're German describing with the newspapers. So like American media. What you're describing with like the kiosks and the newspapers uh, actually happened in America, but with movies, with cinema. And that was when the, the, the studio system got broken up because they were forcing theaters to show all, you know, if we're making one movie, you have to show all the movies. So if you want to show, you know, the big blockbuster, you're going to, they didn't have blockbusters. And if you want to show the big kind of uh, big cast one, you're going to have to show everything all the way down to our cartoon. And it's funny how this was considered sort of, you know, uh, damaging enough that there had to be legislation. Uh, but like when it comes to news, we're not quite as quick as a society to jump on it. 
Yeah, because um, Bild and Axel Spring in general has the defense of if the state goes into regulating this, they're impeding on freedom of the press, which is uh, one of the um, first rights written down in the Grundgesetz, our constitution, that the freedom of the press is not going to be touched upon by the state. And thusly, if the state goes in and regulates the news market, uh, that's going to be problematic, and thusly the state stays out of it. All right. Plus, uh, we are winding um, down. Oh, sorry. Plus, um, at right now, the power of Axel Springer in that regard is dwindling because of, uh, well, the dwindling sales of print media. And more and more people are relying on digital media. And um, you can already kind of see a shift that some media outlets are starting to become more bold in criticizing Bild. Uh, not Axel Springer in general, but Bild. And I think that's good, and I hope that trend continues. Yeah, absolutely. That would be that would be a good thing to keep going. Um, and do you think? Actually, no. What, I'm going to ask my last question this way. Actually, just to you know, because we will we will catch back up with you. I hope sooner rather than later. But what? You know, we're all going to hear a lot about France as they're doing their things, and we kind of do this election cycle. We know you all just had elections, but what is it that we should be looking at if we're trying to see what's happening in German politics? Is it specifically kind of how war policy is being navigated by the SPD and Schultz? Is it to see how the liberals get contained on some of the economic programs? What should we be looking at if we want to be smart people keeping an eye on uh, Europe's largest economy? Um, what what you should be looking at uh, at the political uh, development is the two upcoming state elections in Schleswig-Holstein and most importantly Nordrhein-Westfalen, which is Germany's most populous state. And right now that is governed by a CDU-FDP coalition who has a major scandal at its hand right now, uh, the Mallorca mm. Gate, because several ministers right after the floods last year went to Mallorca to celebrate a birthday together and didn't stay in Dusseldorf in order to handle the situation and uh, some of them resigned, some are still in office and this is most likely going to hurt them in the upcoming election. The SPD is really uh, shooting up in the polls and if the SPD like they did in Saarland where it is very much more a person election than a party election, manages to etch out a victory uh, in NRW and Schleswig-Holstein then there is a serious um, shift in politics in Germany because it shows that despite the SPD disappointing on the federal level, the people are more and more fed up with the corruption within the CDU. Yeah, it's true. It's a real hangover, like 16 years, you know, will we'll sort of just develop things everywhere. And of course, in some of these states, it's probably been even longer than that. Uh, thank you so much for being with us uh, and helping us keep track of these things. And I hope that we can talk to you soon and get an update. Does that sound all right? Yeah, it does. Mein Deutsch is kaputt, but I think we had a good time. Forrest, how, <laughs> was that, how was that generally? Um, so, so. Yeah? All right. Yeah. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida sacrificarse hasta la muerte en los campos de batalla de todos los continentes del mundo. Thanks so much for tuning into the committee program. We know you have many options when it comes to content consumption, and we appreciate your attention to this new season with new episodes on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and at 10 p.m. Central European Time. 
You can support the show by becoming a member on patreon.com slash the committee program. You can follow committee on Twitter, uh, backslash committee pro on YouTube, the committee program on Instagram, the committee program on Facebook, the committee program, and you can visit the committee program company store at tpublic.com, the committee program shop. Special thanks, as always, to our team, Javad Castrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacopo Castelletti, Forrest Levette, and committee's deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Look alive out there. It's later than you think. It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening. program in our second series. For more global infotainment from the committee program click on the video screen right or screen left. Please like and subscribe to the committee program on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. Central European time.